Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number nine in our series for 2022. And today's date is Friday, April the 1st. First, I'll be talking to Andy Tiss, head of Anaplan ANZ. Anaplan is a leading software company used by leading ANZ enterprises across CPG, retail, finance and healthcare to help these companies better plan for the future. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about the Morrison government's budget. But now, let's talk to Andy Thiss. Now, Andy, tell us about the work of Anaplan. Uh, so, Anaplan is a, a cloud-based platform that helps organizations transform and how they see, plan, and run their business. So, been around for over 10 years and most recently in Australia for about five. I mean, it would be particularly acute now with workforce shortages and the supply chain issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think planning is technically kind of seen as a finance function, right? But as finance becomes more and more involved in the operational planning of the business, and especially during the COVID times that we're seeing now, supply chain issues, massive problems for organizations around the globe and in Australia, as well as getting the right talent into the organization and future proofing the way that businesses are going to run. So, and you know, Australia, right, typically relies on overseas workers and various people moving interstate. A lot of pressure now on organizations to make sure they maximize their talent and human capital, really. That's that's quite extraordinary. Now, I mean, because the borders here aren't going to reopen for some time. So that's going to be Correct. quite cute. Correct. I think the interesting thing too is, right, so, I mean, if you even look back to uh, this last tax year, uh, ASIC gave uh, organizations an extra month and a half or whatever because there was a shortage of auditors to do the taxes. So those auditors can then move move, move ship for more more, more money. And very quickly, because there's such a shortage of those skills. So that applies in every uh, industry that we're seeing across Australia, whether it's sales, HR, supply chain, there's a shortage of the right skills to move the businesses forward. And it's a, it's a big problem because oftentimes an organization's workforce is their best asset, but it's also their biggest cost. And oftentimes it gets the least amount of love. So it's a, an extremely uh, interesting time here in Australia because those borders are closed. And it will put a lot of pressure on organizations, especially from a costing perspective. I would imagine, too, that, I mean, I, I was reading this morning in the Financial Times, so UPS was saying that the systems supply chain issues have been exacerbated because the battered airline industry, sharp swings in consumer demand, and the pressures on global shipping. And, yes. and, he's actually, and they're actually predicting that the airline industry won't swing back until 2025. So we're talking yeah, well. here, perhaps permanent problems. 
or long-term problems at least. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the thing you, you mentioned there, right, around demand planning. So organizations, I mean, from a supply chain perspective, it's so important to understand where that demand is so they can, you know, minimize the stock and make sure they get the best customer experience so that those stocks are in store or online when the customer needs them. So the fact that, you know, shipping containers are in short supply. So uh, that's another big pressure on the supply chain, as well as the airlines. It makes it virtually impossible for, for retailers uh, and services business alike to actually look to predict the future. And that's where, you know, rapid scenario planning, demand planning to be able to flex with the times is really going to help organizations. That's where a platform like Anaplan really helps to play and streamline that whole process. Well, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has actually started an inquiry into the sharp rise in container costs because of this issue. Exactly. Well, I mean, you, you think about if you're a, a logistics provider, right, and you're working on relatively small margins, for an, for a costing to go up like that, it makes it almost unprofitable to be able to run your business. So I think it's an interesting uh, inquiry for sure. So, I mean, so the issue is this. I mean, how does a business plan for that? I mean, what systems is your software putting into place to take that into account and to plan effectively? Yeah, so I think if, if you take it a little bit of a step back, organizations have been planning uh, for a very long time, right? Some doing it better than others, right? And organizations typically plan in silos, right? So there's a, a sales function, there's a marketing function, there's a finance function, IT, HR, et cetera, right? Supply chain. And what they do really well historically is they record data. So they've got a CRM system, an ERP system. Okay? And then on the other end of the spectrum, they report on it, which is they've got BI tools that can actually put in the nice graphs and make sure that the data all makes sense. What problem we're solving here in helping organizations is, is what we call the messy middle, right? So between where the source system lies and the reporting system lies is a convoluted web of spreadsheets, point solutions, PowerPoints, multiple, multiple lines of rework. And when you can bring in a platform like Anaplan, it will connect those source systems to the BI tools and allow you to basically use it as a crystal ball to look forward to, to predict the multiple scenarios that you might need to in the ever-changing environment. Okay, so, so what industries would this apply more to? Well, really any industry, right? So that, that's the beautiful thing of this platform, like I said. Now, we work across financial services, so services lines of business, telcos, uh, mining, engineering, construction, retail. So any organization, it's a very kind of horizontal and verticalized type of platform. So I think the, the big problems we're really solving that we're seeing at the moment do tend to be around the supply chain and the workforce planning optimization here in Australia. But obviously, you know, finance and other, other types of use cases are, are quite popular. But yes, it's, it's quite an interesting time for us being a cloud-based platform. I think the only other thing I'd say there is the ability to collaborate in real time is absolutely critical, right? So this data has got to be fast. It's got to be agile. It's got to be quick. And then it has to have the ability to connect these other systems so that you can make use of that data, uh, make smarter decisions faster, ultimately. That means you would have to be talking across the whole organization. Uh, it depends. You know, I think oftentimes conversations do start in finance because it seems that planning uh, in, in all aspects of it seem to start kind of an end in finance. But what it is, is about getting organizations to understand that by connecting these different silos, they're going to be much faster, more agile, and uh, ultimately have a competitive advantage out there in the marketplace by leveraging these, uh, this data that's technically stored in various different components of an enterprise. But uh, that, that also suggests, doesn't it, that you're going to have to get these different parts of the organization talking to each other. And as you say, they're all working in silos. 
And that's quite yes. an issue, isn't it? Or, or organizations are, are realizing now that they, more than ever, that they can't kind of do what they've always done to continue to accelerate their, their growth and their customer satisfaction, right? So I think, yes, there, there, there's challenges across every organization around silos, but a platform like ours can actually help to connect that and bring people together as opposed to continue to operate in those silos. So that's the opportunity that we see, especially for enterprises uh, in Australia, but across the globe. So there's a real opportunity to actually change the operations of organizations here at a, at, a, yeah. at, a, at a really holistic level. Yeah, well, if you think about it, it's a, it's a, tra it's a transformational type of technology, right? It could be as simple as just going in and doing finance, uh, FP&A types of work with a customer, or it can be as transformational as end-to-end -end supply chain, demand planning, trade and promotions. And so recently we've just done a piece of work with a, one of the biggest wine producers here in Australia, right? For just that, it's a transformational piece of work, end-to-end -end trade promotion, supply chain, demand planning, as well as finance. So we've helped them to see that, you know, by connecting these different sources of data across, you know, 30 different countries with, you know, 14,000 staff, we're able to accelerate that planning process so that they can hit their demand plan as well. So um, it is a uh, it is a powerful tool. Right, and totally transformation. Yep, that's, the, I mean, that's the idea is how, how do we help organizations take it to that next level? And um, by helping them connect all the systems, the variables at speed, real time, and accurately, they're able to make better decisions uh, much faster. Well, I would imagine uh, with all the issues with shipping and borders and airlines, uh, you've got your work fairly cut out for the next <laughs> few years. We do. Yes, absolutely. It's It's been uh, an absolute crazy time for us, as you can imagine, right? So not only the fact that, you know, with people now working from home, right? So, you know, the days of having to go in and everybody sits around a desk and looks through a spreadsheet, uh, you can't really do that now. So the ability to kind of collaborate real time across multiple geographies, even though even in Australia, right, between, you know, Sydney and Melbourne or you know, New South Wales, Victoria, it's a really important thing to be able to access that level of data. And that's where a cloud-based platform really comes into play. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be emailing uh, multiple spreadsheets around and uh, it's not a very efficient process as those sit in people's inboxes. Right. And, and the cloud would be the ideal space to do it, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And, it, and as, as you know, Leon, I think, you know, the, the acceleration to cloud, especially in Australia, has, has, has really picked up. And, you know, the pandemic has seen that uh, globally between the different cloud technologies. I think the other interesting thing you did mention there was just around uh, operating models, right? So for example, think if you're a bank, I don't know the last time I went into a branch to do any banking. And that was even before the pandemic, right? Because the technology is getting to a place where you can do that unless it's kind of mandatory. Now, all of a sudden, people can't go in branches or we don't know which branches do what. So do we have the right people at those branches? Are we overstaffed? Are we understaffed? But how do we make sure that we have consistency in the quality of the service levels we deliver? Now, being able to run scenario modelings across the performance of various branches then helps you to look at different operating models to say, okay, well, this 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 branch potentially here could go online or we could discontinue a service here because it's not actually happening. So it allows you to be much more uh, accurate and smart with the decisions that you're making without compromising revenue or customer service, right? And so that's where it, it does that transformation starts to evolve into a much you're looking at different ways of operating and servicing your customers. And that's what's so exciting about it. Well, in a sense, uh, the pandemic and all the pressures that have caused and this cloud-based software of Anaplan uh, could actually change businesses permanently. Absolutely. That's what we're hoping for. Well, Andy, it's been terrific talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for your time, Lee. I really appreciate it. And now let's talk to our MIT economist, Sinclair Davidson. Well, Sinclair, what's your assessment of the budget last night? Um, 
I actually thought it was a, a very good budget. It was an interesting budget. Um, I was kind of expecting a sort of very generous giveaway to everybody in sight kind of thing. But if you have a look at all the bits and pieces of it, it's it's a reasonably crafted budget. It's Of course, it's it's an election budget because we're about to go into a general election in the next few weeks. But there, there was there's no really irresponsible spending that I can actually see. So it's not like you know the the, the final years of, of the Howard era where all of a sudden there was just a fire hydrant of money to anybody and everybody onto any sort of dodgy project. There's nothing in that budget that I was looking at that I would think, gee, we could take that out or this is too much. Well, with one exception, Australian politicians have an obsession with superfast rail. So the superfast rail projects, I would say, look, you know, that's that's probably a bit dodgy. But apart from that, there, there was nothing that I saw in that budget that I would say, let's take that bit out or this bit out, or we can do without that. Um, so it, it, it's so much better than I was actually anticipating. So on, on, on balance, Josh Frydenberg, I think, gives good budgets. And uh, there was a, a good budget. It's interesting because there was no, uh, there was lots of election giveaways and uh, targeted and temporary measures, as Josh Frydenberg said, such as a fuel excise cut and the $250 for pensioners, etc. And that was obviously targeted and that was obviously election budget. But I felt there was no long-term policy changes that, yes. that actually needed to be done. Like, for example... We could use some work on our tax and transfer system. We could, but bearing in mind, we are going into general election. And budgets are no longer the set and forget uh, uh, sort of policy things that they used to be in the past. So I'm kind of thinking um, that budget last night was ticking us over. And a lot of the policy development is going to come out in a general election, which is due... I imagine they will call the general election by the end of next week. Um, so we are just about to go into an extended budget process, if you like. But, but, but even, even there, uh, I just kind of thought the $240 to uh, a giveaway to, to, to pensioners and veterans and what have you, that's not unreasonable. The petrol excise uh, reduction, uh, temporary, which I suspect is going to be more than temporary, but the, the $0.22 cents petrol excise is, has been widely criticised. I'm actually a fan of it. I actually think this was a good thing to have done because uh, the price of fuel at the moment is rocketed through the ceiling more or less because of sanctions being imposed upon Russia following the Ukrainian war. Now, I think it's entirely appropriate that that cost burden be borne by the taxpayer and not by the consumer. Um, in actual fact, bearing in mind, we, we, are, we are coming out of a massive negative shock to the economy. Uh, to have that whammy of increased fuel prices is actually going to dampen the, the economic recovery. So I actually think reducing the fuel excise is a good idea. I think there definitely will not be a temporary measure. I suspect the fuel excise will be uh, reduced by uh, $0.22 cents for more than six months because there is no way any government is going to be promising people the price of petrol is going to go up by $0.22 cents in six months' time. So I suspect that that, that fuel excise reduction will be in place for a while, um, and I think it'll be eased back into place. If we if we think back to when John Howard uh, uh, froze the petrol excise in, I think it was 2000, 2001, whenever it was, it took over 10 years for that to become unfrozen. 
So I, I suspect that the fuel excise uh, reduction will be in place for a long, long time. The other thing is if you trawl through the, the budget papers, revenue from fuel excise is not declining. Uh, the rate of increase has, re has, has, has reduced. But in actual fact, the government will continue to collect a lot of revenue from fuel excise, just not as much as they, as, as, as they plan. A couple of things that, 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 that sort of do fall out of the budget numbers, uh, as opposed to the story that's going on, is that uh, total revenue to the government next year is expected to fall by just under $9 billion. Um, that's actually quite rare when, when, when revenue falls to government. So for all the story that we're hearing about the economy is roaring back and what have you, revenue to government is falling and it is not due to the fuel excise. Um, most um, payments are falling by just under $11 billion, which more or less gives us an improvement in the budget position of just over uh, or to just under $2 billion. Now, I'm kind of thinking if the economy is roaring back, the government is withdrawing all the temporary COVID uh, payments that it was given and, and, and support and what have you, to have a budget improvement that goes from uh, minus $79 billion to minus $77 billion isn't as big an improvement as I would have liked. And, and government revenue is falling. A lot of that government falling government revenue is being driven by an expected fall in company tax uh, receipts. Now, again, if the economy is roaring back, why is company tax revenue expected to fall? On the other hand, we can actually say the government is not very good or the Treasury is not very good at forecasting company tax revenue. They, they, they've kind of got it wrong, horribly wrong in the past. And if they've got it horribly wrong again, there could actually be additional revenue coming in that government hasn't forecast. What also worries me is um, obviously gross debt and net debt are, are, are rising. And of course, they are going to continue to rise while we have deficits. But I did some back of the envelope calculations. Um, net debt is rising faster than is gross debt, which says to me that the offsetting assets which the government has, which the difference between the gross and the net, are deteriorating in quality. They're, they're becoming impaired. Um, that worries me too. So the story that the economy is really roaring back um, and, and government's getting lots of revenue and what have you is not actually supported by the numbers in the actual budget. So I think we have to, we have to think about that. We also have to think about inflation is expected to rise, which of course tells us interest rates are going to be rising. We know this. Interest rates have been at an unusually low level for a long period of time anyway. Um, so we have to think about that as well. Um, the long-term challenge for the, for, for the economy, which you mentioned, which I, I suspect should be coming out in, 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 in the election talk, is what are we doing about long-term productivity? And I don't believe that we can fix long-term productivity through government's taxing and spending. I actually think that we need to start looking at uh, reducing the tax burden on entrepreneurship. We need to start thinking about reducing the red tape burden. We need to start thinking about reducing the green tape burden. And unfortunately, at the moment, we have none of that discussion going. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, I can't see that uh, um, anybody's going to do that. In, in terms of inflation, they're saying inflation will peak at 4.25% and it'll settle at 3%. I'm wondering whether that's right or whether that's just an optimistic projection because inflation seems to be heading the other way overseas. And so you've got that issue. And there are, there's talk of it rising up to 5% now from economists. And as well as that, uh, the projection of wage growth kicking back when unemployment falls to 3.75%. I couldn't see any numbers, any data supporting that. It just seemed to be an optimistic projection. What's your view about that? A lot of those numbers that they put into the budget papers are are always wishful thinking. Um, A number that is not wishful thinking in that is inflation. So we, we need to unpack inflation for a little bit. So there's two things going on. One, prices have gone up around the world because there have been supply shortages. That is not inflation per se. That is a change in relative prices. Things have become more valuable because there's less of it. But we're also seeing a massive debt-fueled recovery. Um, Governments have been printing money and borrowing the money that they've printed back again. Um, That is causing a a devaluation, the quality of our money. I'm still not sure how much of the price increases that we're seeing are changes in relative prices and how much is a genuine inflation problem. I am optimistic that I think a lot of it is going to be just a change of relative prices and that inflation isn't going to be as big a problem as we think, but I could be wrong on that. I'm I'm, I'm still seeing very mixed signals coming out of the economy. The challenge, though, there is if you look at that expected wage increase. So unemployment is expected to drop to 3.75%. Now, that is a fantastic number. Everybody who wants a job should be able to get a job. I mean, I, I kind of think we'd we all agree on, on that particular principle. So that's a really good number. Whether or not that'll lead to wage increases, I'm not quite sure. Uh, we haven't seen real wage increases in the Australian economy for a long, long time. Um, and bearing in mind, politicians talk about it a lot. The fact of the matter is politicians don't set wages. Unless you are in a job earning minimum wage or you were working on Saturday and a Sunday, um, and there's penalty rates, more or less wages are set by market prices. So there's not much governments can do about that. There's also not much governments can do about prices per se, unless they are prepared to enhance the productive capacity of the economy. Neither side of politics have been too keen to go down that path for a while, because too many people think increasing the productive side of the economy either means destroying wages and conditions, which is a great scare campaign, or if we think back to the 2016 election with uh, Malcolm Turnbull, where he was talking about increasing productivity, everybody thought, oh, a computer is going to take my job and I'm going to become unemployed. So politicians are kind of loath to go down that particular path. But we do need to think about enhancing the productive capacity of the economy. And uh, Senator Bragg had some good ideas around crypto there. But generally speaking, I think there's a lack of imagination in the space. The final worrying part about the budget is that we're looking at at least a decade, a decade and a half of deficits. 
And that is going to contribute massively to debt because we're just going to have to keep borrowing. And I think that's going to be an issue for whoever wins the election. Yes, that is correct. Unfortunately, after the coalition came to office in 2013, they were unwilling to take any of the major serious decisions that it took to pay down the debt that after the GFC. Now, we can argue whether or not there was good debt or bad debt or whatever. The fact of the matter is, is that it was the bipartisan consensus, both uh, Swan and then Hockey and then um, whoever came after Hockey um, as, as his treasurer, they all took the view that we were going to grow out of the debt. We weren't ever going to cut spending in any serious manner. And I kind of think that that mindset has taken hold in Canberra and again, they're going to go through the, we're going to grow out of the debt and pay it down over time. Now, that means that our great-grandchildren will be paying down our debt and we will be telling them some sort of story about how grateful they should be that we've given them a wonderful world. And indeed, we're hearing the same line coming from Labour. Yes, yes, this is definitely bipartisan policy. Uh, we will grow down the debt. Um, looking at Josh Frydenberg's uh, uh, budget of last night, there is nothing that Labour are going to take out of that. They're just going to add if they want to, or they might tweak here and there. But uh, very much, the, that is a, a bipartisan uh, uh, budget that we saw last night. Well, Sinclair, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you very much for your insights. Thank you so much. So what's happening in the news? Well, Australia announced a series of spending measures from fuel tax cuts to cash handouts designed to cushion the impact of rising living costs, which Treasurer Josh Frydenberg describes as temporary, targeted and proportionate, and cut up our Prime Minister Scott Morrison back into contention for a May election. At the same time, Tuesday's budget showed the deficit narrowing to $78 billion in fiscal 2023, or 3.4% of GDP, and $43.1 billion, or 1.6% of GDP, by 2026, Gross debt will rise to $1.117 trillion in 2024-25, or 44.9% of GDP. Net debt will peak in June 2026 at $864.7 billion, 33.1% of GDP. The government is forecasting we might be getting somewhere close to a balanced budget in 10 years' time, but this will only be after continuing along most of this decade with spending running at more than 26% of GDP, a once-off step from levels closer to 24% before the pandemic, while tax is suddenly supposed to slow at 23.9% of GDP. In other words, this budget complacently is talking about being comfortable with underlying deficits for the next decade. Australia faces at least another decade and a half of deficits, which it will have to finance by increasing amounts of debt with interest rates on the rise. The budget predicts the jobless rate will fall in the third quarter to 3.75%, driving wages growth above 3% for the first time in a decade. The budget anticipates inflation will peak well below most of the advanced economies. It forecasts the consumer price index will hit 4.25% through the year to the June quarter of 2022, before moderating to 3% next financial year. The economy is forecast to expand by a robust 4.5% this financial year, up from the 3.75% tipped in December, to be followed by a healthy 3.5% in 2022-23. All up, the Morrison government has made an audacious bid for re-election, with an $8.6 billion cost of living package that slashes petrol tax by 22 cents per litre for six months. The government has halved the 44.2 cents per litre fuel excise for six months at a net cost of the budget of $2.9 billion. The upfront cost of the cut is $5.6 billion, but this is reduced by $2.7 billion in diesel excise rebates the government doesn't have to refund to miners, fishers and farmers. The cut to be legislated this week comes into effect 12.01am. 
Wednesday and ends automatically at 11.59pm on September 28th. It hands $250 cheques to 6 million pensioners and welfare recipients. In a naked appeal to voters grappling with the rising cost of living, the government has spent big on these one-off assistance measures, which Mr Frydenberg said were temporary, targeted and responsible, and which he said had been assured by Treasury would not be inflationary. The budget also embellished the four, by $420 per person, the lower middle-income tax offset and an end-of-year rebate for those earning up to $126,000 a year. The bonus means at the end of this financial year, single taxpayers will be eligible for bonuses of $1,500 and couples $3,000. The measure will cost the budget $4.1 billion. Another $1.5 billion will be spent on the $250 cost of living payments to aged pensioners and welfare recipients. The budget provides $18 billion for new road and rail projects around the country, $15 billion for an East Coast submarine base, an upgrade to the Henderson Naval Shipyard in WA and other defence projects around the country, $480 million over six years for a million households and regional rural and remote areas for access to high-speed broadband. For small businesses, it provides a $120 tax deduction for every $100 they spend on training employees and the same deduction for spending on digital technologies such as cloud computing, cybersecurity or e-invoicing. The government also set aside significant funds to target women, with whom it has struggled since Morrison was accused of mishandling harassment, sexism allegations in the parliament. And rising bond yields means a multi-billion dollar interest bill on Australia's $1 trillion debt will jump by nearly 50% to $26.3 billion over the budget four-year forward estimates. But the hit could be greater than forecasts over the 10-year bond yield surge to 2.9%, rising above the pre-pandemic levels the day before the budget, well above the 2.3% assumed by Treasury out to 2025-26. That puts a 10-year yield about 12 months ahead of the, even the budget's high-end forecast, in which gross debt lifts above 45% GDP over the medium term, about 12% higher than expected. And $25 billion worth of residential properties at risk due to the increasing storm surges and coastal erosion, new research shows. Coastal property is more at risk than ever after significant development in popular beach towns over the past 30 years and a rise in beachside property values, CoreLogic Coastal Risk Financial Risk Assessment report found. Increasing coastal risk is pushing up insurance premiums and could affect property values, the group said, highlighting the recent floods in New South Wales and Queensland as an example of a devastation that extreme weather events can wreak on people and property. The top 10 suburbs with the most value at risk are spread across the east coast, often in popular residential neighbourhoods or holiday towns with low elevations, high property values and a fast receding coastline. Paradise Post on the Gold Coast has $1.467 billion of property at risk due to its canals, the most of any suburb in Australia. About 20% of the suburbs are at high risk, the report said. Cronulla in Sydney's south ranks second with $486.4 million of property at risk, followed by Port Melbourne with $483.8 million. Other at-risk suburbs include Manly and Collaroy in Sydney's south sought after northern beaches, Melbourne Bayside suburbs Brighton and Aspendale, Runaway Beach on the Gold Coast and Caloundra and Golden Beach on the Sunshine Coast. The report also looked at coastal retreat rates, warning of gradual coastal erosion, as well as the immediate risk of storm surges. In East Mackay in Queensland, the coastline is retreating at an average rate of 7.72 metres a year, the report found. Victoria's Queenscliff and Portland are retreating at more than 5 metres each year, while on the New South Wales south coast, North Batemans Bay is retreating at more than 3 metres a year. And inflation expectations continued to surge, according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan survey. Inflation expectations rose 0.4 percentage points to 6.4% last week, the highest weekly reading since June 2012. Its four-week moving average rose 0.3 percentage points to 5.8%. Consumer confidence was virtually unchanged, with a decline of just 0.1%. Among the major States, confidence dropped in Victoria, Queensland and South Australia, while it increased in New South Wales and Western Australia. And households in New South Wales, Victoria, the ACT and Tasmania could be forced to cut their gas use during next year's winter due to an ongoing supply squeeze as production dries up from offshore fields and amid 
a year-long delay of bringing on volumes from Australia's first LNG import plant. The shock warning means consumers and businesses face a fresh energy security crisis at a time of record petrol prices and broader inflation across the economy and ahead of a May federal election. The Australian Energy Market Operator, which runs the National Electricity and Gas System, has forecast the risk of gas shortfalls under extreme weather conditions from winter 2023 in New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania and the ACT, when average consumer demand is three times more than summer. And corporate governance experts are predicting further casualties from the Star Entertainment's senior ranks and board after Chief Executive Matt Beckier resigned on Monday following damaging revelations about the group's failure to stop money laundering and organise crime risks in its casino in an ongoing quarry into Sydney Star Casino. Mr Beckier will step down from the board immediately, but his final departure date is yet to be determined. Star Entertainment Group Chairman John O'Neill said Mr Beckier told the board he was resigning because he was accountable for the effectiveness and adequacy of the company's processes, policies, people and culture. Last week, the public inquiry heard that it was widely known by those at senior levels of the casino that cash transactions were occurring in a junket room, which was prohibited because of the risk of money laundering. Star employers have already admitted misleading the National Australian Bank when it inquired on behalf of China Union Pay for reassurances that cards were not being used for gambling. The inquiry last week heard that a high roller spent $11 million on a China Union Pay debit card in one day at the Star. Property developer Philip Dong Fang Lee told the inquiry he would spend millions in a day at the casino. The inquiry had previously heard that cards issued by the China Union Bank were only allowed to be used for non-gambling expenses under an agreement with the bank. The inquiry by the Independent Liquor and Gaming Authority is looking into the Star Entertainment's group's suitability to run its casinos at Piermont. And take-up of buy-now-pay-later products is moving beyond the young consumers who were early adopters to include older groups, according to new research. RFI Global has released a report, The Global State of the BNPL, which shows the BNPL customer demographic is expanding and consumers are preparing to use BNPL for a wider range of purchases. Close to a third of BNPL users in Australia and the UK said they would use it to pay for everyday expenses, and a significant number in both countries said they would use it to pay for higher-valued purchases, including electronics, furniture and travel. Currently, online clothing purchases the main purchase using BNPL in Australia, the UK and the US. RFI said that based on consumer responses, growth areas would be in travel, home improvements and medical expenses. RFI found that 40% of Australian consumers had used the BNPL service at least once, and 30% in the US and the UK have used it. In Hong Kong and Singapore, usage levels are 37% and 24% respectively. No interest is a leading reason for using BNPL. Another important factor encouraging take-up is convenience. Older consumers are more likely to say the reason they use it is because a no-interest offer gives them a lower cost replacement for their credit cards. RFI found there are still barriers to consumer acceptance. Close to half the consumers surveyed in Australia see it as a form of debt and want to avoid debt. Another concern is a lack of trust in BNPL providers. RFI said the trust issue prevents an opportunity for banks, which enjoy a higher level of trust with consumers, to offer their own BNPL products or partner with BNPL companies. RFI said that for BNPL to have greater penetration in the in-store market, providers will have to do more work to provide a quick and easy checkout experience, such as offering virtual cards in mobile wallets. On the merchant side, BNPL providers could win greater acceptance by cutting fees, which are seen by many merchants as high. And Australia ranks number one in Asia-Pacific for most ransomware attacks, and seventh globally, according to new research, which reveals that 37% of all attacks on Australian organisations targeted the commercial and professional services sector. The research, released from Unit 42 by global cybersecurity leader Palo Alto Networks, also found that ransomware payments hit new records in 2021, as cybercriminals increasingly turned to dark web leak sites where they pressured victims to pay up threatening to release sensitive data. In Australia, the research also found that 2021 saw a 642% increase in dark web leaks on the prior year, and 38% of all attacks targeted organisations in New South 
South Wales, ACT, the loose targeted geography, the average ransom demand in the cases worked by Palo Alto Networks Unit 42 security consultants rose 144% in 2021 to US $2.2 million. The average payment climbed 78% to US $541,010, according to the 2022 Unit 42 ransomware threat report. An insurance coverage for businesses hit by cybersecurity breach is becoming more expensive and harder to find, senior industry figures have warned. Businesses take out cyber coverage to cover the costs of a hack or cyber attack, including identifying the cost and recovering from the intrusion. Insurers writing cover for cyber attacks face an expanding market that is expected to double or triple from current levels of US $5 billion in premiums each year, coupled with the rapidly escalating cost of each attack. Marsh, a key insurance broker for some of Australia's largest businesses, warns the Russia-Ukraine conflict could spill over into cyber attacks in other countries. This in turn could see insurers push further to wind back coverage in the event of an attack, with Marsh warning it could constitute an attack of war, triggering an exclusion that would bar a cyber insurance cover customer from making a claim. Marsh Head of Security Bali Kelly Butler said many businesses would see policy updates in the coming weeks that excluded cyber attacks from state action. And the ASEX is expected to delay the starting date of its $250 million chess clearing and settlement replacement for a fourth time after an urgent meeting in New York with its business partner and key technology supplier, Digital Asset Holdings. ASX Chairman Damien Roche, Departing Chief Executive Dominic Stevens and the Executive in Charge of Chess Replacement, Tim Hogburn, flew to New York at short notice last week for the meeting with DAH. The three men returned to Australia late last week and are now believed to be preparing a delay in the April 2023 go-live start date. It was not clear at the weekend whether the project would be delayed for six months or 12 months. Another delay in the project's starting date would be a significant blow to the world's most high-profile, most costly and longest-running blockchain project. And Blackstone has received confirmation from the Foreign Investment Review Board that the Commonwealth Bank has no objection to its proposed acquisition of Crown. The implementation of the scheme remains subject to a number of other conditions, including approval from gaming, regulatory authorities, Crown shareholder approval and court approval. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to leading Australian employment industrial law barrister Ian Neal, SC, examining the seismic changes that have shaped the employment landscape and relationship between employers and employees during the COVID-19 pandemic, when and how employers can require employers to return to work, and employment law issues arising with more people working from home, including occupational health and safety, both physical and mental. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Avery about the impact of the Russian invasion on the, of Ukraine on the global economy. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 